Okay, let's just bow in prayer. Lord God, would you give favor right now as we hear your word read and expounded. Lord, give favor to your people to have ears to hear, eyes to see what the Spirit is saying and what he's showing us. Lord, we pray you enlarge our understanding of God. Lord, give us a greater view of our, our mighty God in the heavens. We pray that you might draw us to worship as a result of looking at you deeply today. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in the midst of a series on the attributes of God. And we've seen what the Bible teaches about God's presence, God's knowledge, God's eternal existence. And we've seen that God is not limited by various things. God isn't limited by time. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's not limited by space. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present at the same time. He's not limited by knowledge. He's infinite in knowledge. And when we come today to talk about the power of God, God isn't limited in his power. His power, according to scripture, is infinite. Now, that's not to say that God can do anything. There are some things God can't do. And you're probably gasping, thinking, Brian, are you, what are you saying? <laughs> but the Bible does teach there are certain things God can't do. He can't lie. He can't deny himself. He can't cease to exist. He can't make a rock so big he can't lift it or move it. Now, why can't God do those things that I just mentioned? It's because that would violate his nature. God can do anything consistent with his nature. But it's not consistent with God's nature to sin or to lie or to deny himself or to cease to exist or to make something so big he can't manage or control it. So yes, and by the way, we are exactly the same way. We can only do those things that are consistent with our nature. So we can make all kinds of choices, but only choices consistent with our nature. We can't make choices that are against our nature. So we're like God in that respect. And we also need to realize that God can do anything as easily as he can do anything else. In other words, it's not, God isn't more tuckered out and tired and needs to take a nap by creating a galaxy versus creating a butterfly. You know, like he's, he's always oh, just wiped out. He's got he's to rest. No, he, he could create or do all things effortlessly. When we work, we get tired, and we need to rest, and we need to replenish our energy with food. But God doesn't need to rest. I mean, there is a Sabbath day, and he did rest on the Sabbath day, That's, but it wasn't because he was tired. He was still working even on the Sabbath day because he was maintaining the whole universe that he just created. He was preserving it. But God never needs to be replenished. And even if he did, where would he go to get replenished? Who's going to do the replenishing for God? You know, it's, it's actually silly when you think about it. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. God doesn't become weary. Doesn't become tired. Psalm 62, 11 
says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Power belongs to God. Revelation 19.6 says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And God is referred to as the Almighty 58 times in the Bible. He is the Almighty. In Luke 22.69, Jesus said, From now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now what is, what's Jesus doing there? He said, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand, not of God, but of the power of God. In other words, he uses the power of God as a synonym for God himself. God is the power of God, according to Christ. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, Solomon is praying and he says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. So those are just some basic scriptures for us to start getting a feel for what the Bible says about the power of God. But this morning I want to meditate with you on God's power. And we want to do it under five different headings. The power of God in creation. The power of God in preservation. The power of God in Christ. The power of God in believers and the power of God in unbelievers. So those five areas. Let's first think about the power of God in creation. There have been many brilliant men down through the centuries that have been able to create things. Think of Michelangelo creating those beautiful statues out of marble and stone. Or think of the inventions that men have made like Thomas Edison, the electric light, or the telephone, or the phonograph, or the automobile, or the airplane, or radio, or television, or the computer, or the smartphone. <laughs> and others have created very beneficial things like penicillin or um, vaccines for diseases like the latest COVID-19 vaccines. And sometimes we we view people who are able to create something brand new with awe and respect. But even the greatest of the world's inventors over the centuries have only been able to create something with pre-existing materials, right? They had a block of stone and a chisel and they took those two things and they created something beautiful. Or they had glass and wire and platinum and created a light bulb. But God didn't start with any pre-existing materials. That's what sets God's creative genius apart from anybody else. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. God had nothing visible to start with. Psalm 33 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So how did God create, according to Psalm 33.6? The breath of his mouth, the word of the Lord. Like Genesis 1, chapter 1, the Lord spoke, and things appeared. Things came into reality, came into existence. Now, consider this with me. How much power did it take for God to create the universe that we see around us? How much power would that take? 
I want to try to explore that with you. And I'm just going to tell you at the beginning, we're not going to be able to understand it. We're, we don't have the ability to be able to understand the kind of power that God has. But we want to try a little bit. We want to scratch the surface today. Alpha Centauri is the closest star to the Earth apart from our Sun. So if you go past our Sun, the very next star is Alpha Centauri. And a professor was once speaking to his students and he said, okay, we're going to allow every inch to represent one million miles. He said, if one inch represents a million miles, how far would you have to go to get to Alpha Centauri? And they started to give their answers. One student said, oh, three feet. Another said, 10 feet. Another one said, 100 feet. And actually the answer is, to get to Alpha Centauri, you're going to have to get in your car and you're going to have to start driving. And you're going to have to drive down Sunrise Boulevard to Grantline Road and make a right and keep going up Grantline Road to Highway 99 and then go south on Highway 99 past Galt and Lodi and Stockton and Manteca and Modesto and Visalia and Bakersfield and go up over the grapevine and go down into the Los Angeles basin and go past Los Angeles until you almost get to San Diego. That's how far you're gonna have to go to get to Alpha Centauri, which is mind-boggling. And that's the closest star besides our sun, the closest. That blows the mind. It's 300,000 times further than from the earth to the sun. 300,000 times. It takes eight minutes and 20 seconds for the light from the sun to reach planet Earth. Eight minutes and 20 seconds. How long do you suppose it takes to get from Alpha Centauri to the Earth? It takes 4.3 years. 4.3 years. Now let's say we could get in our fastest spaceship that we've ever created. This spaceship goes 25,000 miles an hour. You get in that spaceship and you start flying at rocket speed, 25,000 miles an hour. It's going to take you six months to get to the sun. Of course, your spaceship's going to be dissolved before you get there, but let's just say it didn't get dissolved. Six months and you, you hit the sun. How long is it going to take you to get to Alpha Centauri? Six months to the sun. It's going to take you 114,000 years to get to the very nearest star. <laughs> And we start to see how tiny we are in this vast, you could almost say infinite. I guess it's not, but it seems like it's an infinite universe. The numbers are so astronomically ridiculous that I just throw my hands up and I admit I'm never going to be able to comprehend the vastness of what God has created. It's estimated that our Milky Way galaxy is somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000 light years. Not years. Take the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second. Okay, that's pretty fast. And it's going to take between 100,000 and 150,000 years just to get across our galaxy. And folks, our galaxy is one of about 100 billion other galaxies. Just as big. Astronomers estimate that our galaxy is about 93 billion light years across. 
So we're not talking about thousands or millions, but billions. And they think it's expanding. And that's only the observable universe. We, we really don't know how, how big this universe is. Let's just take our sun for a minute. The sun produces more energy every single second than has been used in all of mankind's history. Every second the sun produces the same energy as about one trillion one megaton bombs. Okay, now you know your history from World War II. We dropped those bombs on Hiroshima. Those bombs, a one megaton bomb would be 80 times more powerful than that one. So we're going to take one trillion bombs that are 80 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bombs, and that's how much power the sun puts out every single second, which is, <laughs> that, and that's just one star out of billions and billions and billions of stars. In one second, the sun produces enough energy for about 500,000 years of the current needs of our own civilization. It's only an average sized star in the universe. There are some stars that are many times bigger. Not just twice as big, but there's one that's 1,700 times bigger than our sun. So our sun is like a pea compared to a basketball when you look at some of these stars out there. So the immensity of the universe is beyond human understanding. And that's why sometimes I wonder, Lord, why did you make it so big? <laughs> I guess to show his power, for one thing, and give us I, some kind of an inkling of the power of Almighty God. Now, how much power would it take for God to create our sun? Just one star. And we've already seen the kind of power it releases all the time. And that, that's amazing. But then think, okay, this one star is one out of about 100 billion in the Milky Way galaxy. There's about 100 billion galaxies. And it just, it's more than we can understand or conceive. And I think that's why the Bible says God's power is not bounded. It's not limited. It's not finite. So we see the power of God in creation. Let's think about the power of God in preservation. What do I mean by preservation? I mean that God not only had to create the universe, but then he has to uphold it and maintain it and preserve it. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So did you hear that? Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. That word uphold has the meaning of he supports or he maintains all things. If Jesus stopped holding all things up, they would come crashing down. If he were to stop holding all things up by the word of his power, there would be chaos and destruction everywhere. Imagine if Jesus were to allow the law of gravity to cease for five seconds. <laughs> all of us would be hurled into space. Scientists tell us that the earth is situated in the perfect spot in relationship to the sun for life to thrive. They call it the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot, not too cold. Now, if the Lord allowed the orbit of planet earth to drift closer to the sun, we would all be burnt up. 
And if you allowed the orbit of the earth to drift further away, we would all freeze to death. Let me just share some of the other planets around the earth. Venus is the next planet closer to the sun than us. The average temperature on Venus is 880 degrees Fahrenheit. So no life can survive. But if you'd go one planet the other direction, that's Mars, the average temperature is minus 81 degrees Fahrenheit, making it very, very difficult for any life to survive. If you take, go one planet further than, um, than Venus, I'm sorry, than Mars, that's Jupiter, and that's, the average temperature is a negative 234 degrees. So God put planet Earth in just the right orbit around the sun so that life could thrive here. What if the Lord allowed the moon to be closer to the earth? The ocean tides would become so large that it would create great flooding, causing cities like London and New York to disappear underwater because the tides would be so strong. And the reason that things like this have not happened is because Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians says, in him all things hold together. And not only did God create all life forms on the earth, but he preserves all life forms on the earth. He gives all these animals, all these creatures, insects, birds, fish. He, he provides their food and their water and their shelter. Millions and millions of different species and kinds of, of animals that roam the, roam the earth. He provides for all of them. Now, the deist pictures God as sort of a cosmic watchmaker. The universe is like a watch that he created. He, he revs it up. He, he clicks on it. The watch starts working. He leaves it there and he walks away, never to come back again. But the Bible pictures God as a personal God who interacts with his creation and upholds all of his creation moment by moment, day by day. So we see the power of God in creation, the power of God in preservation, but let's think about the power of God in Christ now. The power of God in Jesus Christ. First of all, think about the birth of Christ. What did it take for Jesus Christ to be born? Gabriel came to Mary, and in Luke 1.35, he said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So, Jesus was born of a woman who had never known a man. Now, of course, that's impossible, humanly speaking, for a woman who's never known a man to have a child. But it's not impossible for God. God exercised his power to bring Jesus Christ into the world. Not only the birth of Christ, think of the ministry of Christ. Jesus was baptized. He was driven into the wilderness. He was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And then after that time, Luke 1.14 says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. Not only his ministry, but his works of healing showed the power of God. 
Think about Jesus' works of healing. He healed the paralytic, the man with a withered hand, those who were blind and deaf, the woman with the issue of blood, the man whom Peter cut off his ear, Jesus put it back on and restored it, the lepers. Peter said in Acts 10.38, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So we see the power of God in his birth, in his ministry, in his healings, not only that, but in his authority over demons. Demons fled at the word of Christ. Even when uh, Jesus was confronted with a man who had a legion of demons. We don't know exactly how many there were, but there were a lot. Jesus cast them all out with a word. Also, his authority over nature shows the power of God. He walked on water, stilled the storm, multiplied the fish and the loaves, fed the thousands, turned water into wine. Not only that, but his authority over death shows the power of God. He raised not one, not two, but three persons from the dead, and one person had been dead four days, and his body starting to decompose. And in that state, Jesus brought him back to life, and he was completely restored. But not only that, the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of Jesus Christ show the power of God. In Ephesians 1:19, Paul says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. <clears throat> and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the power of God was demonstrated in Jesus being raised from the dead. But that wasn't the end of things, was it? Forty days later, what took place? That same Jesus who was raised from the dead was lifted bodily <laughs> and, and, and ascended went up into the heavens. Now you, we say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that doesn't happen. People don't just, unless they have power jetpacks on their back or something, they don't just rise up into the heavens. Well, Jesus did. By the power of God, he ascended back into the heavens from whence he came. And also the second coming of Christ shows the power of God. Matthew 24, 30 says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, this is a disputed passage. There are some people who, uh, some people who believe this is a reference to the second coming of Christ. Others think it's a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies and Jesus coming in power to judge that nation. I'm personally undecided, but if it is a reference to the second coming, it shows his power. Because Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to come with power and great glory. So, we see the power of God in Christ, but we also see the power of God in believers. And I'm going to give you rapid fire ten areas where you see the power of God in believers. 
Number one, the power of God enables them to believe in the first place. I just read you that scripture from Ephesians 1, but verse 19 says that people believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised them from the dead. People come to believe the gospel because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. It's not like they can just flip a switch whenever they want and say, okay, I'm just, I'll just decide to believe today. Well, why not, Brian? Why can't they just flip a switch? Because they love their sin, and to believe in Christ means they've got to turn from loving to hating their sin. Because they're blind to the glory of God, they're deaf to the beauty of His words, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, of course it's going to take a resurrection, a spiritual resurrection to enable that person to be saved, to believe the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, Paul says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now when we preach the gospel to people, sometimes it comes in word only because it has no effect on their lives. Nothing's changed, right? But when the gospel comes to someone and changes them, why does it happen? What's going on? It, it happens because it came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit. And when that takes place, it comes with full conviction. Do you remember in Acts 16, the Bible says that the Lord worked in Lydia's heart so that she would respond to the things spoken of by Paul. The Lord was working powerfully within her heart and soul so that she would respond that day. So when we think about people that we want to be saved, we ought to pray, Lord, show your power in them. Take your resurrection power and enable them to believe the gospel. Not only does the power of God enable people to believe, it enables them to witness for Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. If you feel like you need power to be a witness, go to God. God has the power and I'm sure that he wants you to be his witness. He's the one that enables us to witness for Christ. Not only that, but the power of God enables believers to abound in hope. Paul said in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're filled with hope, let's say that you're on your deathbed, but instead of, instead of becoming destitute and depressed and forlorn, you have hope because you know that you're going to see your Savior. That's because of the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. Not only that, but the power of God enables believers to have ministry. We know this from Ephesians 3 and verse 7. Paul said, Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of God's power. So Paul said, I was made a minister 
according to the power of God. Now, not all of us have the same kind of a ministry as Paul does, but all of us have a job to do in this world. And you can call that your ministry. It's your area of service, whether it's to your husband or your children or to your neighbors or to your friends, your relatives, whether the people that you work with. We all have some sphere of influence that God wants to use us for his kingdom. Paul said that he received his ministry by the power of God. Here's another one. The power of God enables believers to have Christ dwell in their hearts. This comes from Ephesians 3.16. Paul prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. And someone has paraphrased this, so that Christ might settle down and be at home in your hearts through faith. In other words, that Christ would move in and be comfortable living in you, his home. Is Christ comfortable living in you, do you suppose? Or is he uncomfortable because of our sin? The power of God enables Christ to come and dwell in our hearts. Not only that, but the power of God enables believers to persevere in their faith to the end. How's that going to happen? Do we have the power in ourselves to persevere? Not a chance. We are no match for the devil in ourself, I'm talking, or our indwelling sin or the temptations that we face to be able to hold out and endure to the end. But the power of God will enable us to do what we never could do on ourselves. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.5, Believers are protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power protects believers. God's power works in them and perfects them until the day of Christ. Here's another one. The power of God enables believers to labor in God's work. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul writes, We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So Paul was saying, God's power mightily works within me, and that's why I'm able to labor and strive. God's power enables us to labor in the work of God. It also enables us to suffer for the gospel. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.8 to Timothy, Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. I'm sure you've all heard stories of people who have suffered greatly for their faith. They've been arrested. They've been in prison for years. They've been tortured. We read a book about that recently. But I've read also Fox's Book of Martyrs where people were burned at the stake. And you wonder, how were they able to go to the stake singing and to end their last moments on earth just worshiping the Lord while they're being burned alive? It's because of the power of God.
The power of God is working in them, enabling them to bear up under suffering and to glorify Him. And the power of God also enables believers to live a life of godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God's power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. A holy life. A righteous life. If we end up living a godly life, it's not because of our own ability, our own power. It's because of the power of God. Not only that, the power of God enables believers to be raised bodily from the dead. It enables their bodies to be glorified like Christ's body was. Philippians 3.21 says, Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So our bodies are going to be raised from the dead by the power of God. So are you starting to see that everything in the Christian life has to be done by the power of God? We don't have the ability in ourselves to live the Christian life, to live a godly life, to minister to others, to abound in hope, to suffer for the gospel, to persevere in faith, to labor in the work of the gospel, to witness for Christ, or to do anything else. But God extends his power to us so that we can do those things. So there we see the power of God in believers. Let's think a moment about the power of God in unbelievers. How will God demonstrate his power in unbelievers? Well, we have a clue in Romans 9.22. It says there, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now what is Paul saying in that text? I believe he's saying, God is willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known. He's going to do that one day. But right now, he's not doing that. Right now, he's enduring them with much patience, with great patience. However, he's not always going to endure them with great patience. There will come a time when his patience will run out. And on that time, he's going to demonstrate his power by demonstrating his wrath. In other words, God's power is going to be seen in unbelievers when he pours out his wrath on them in judgment. Now we've seen something of the power of God when you just look at what he's made. And we can't even understand that kind of power. Well, think about that kind of power being against you for all eternity. That's what hell is. The power of God unleashed against the unbelievers and it doesn't stop it's an eternal punishment Jesus said for believers the power of God is beautiful it's a wonderful truth but for unbelievers it's a terrifying truth God is for the believer but he's against the unbeliever all the power of God is used for the believers good but all the power of God is used for the damnation and destruction of the unbeliever. So as we, as we come to our 
conclusion this morning of our meditation on God's power. Let me just ask you, have you ever worshipped God for his power? I think we should. I think we should think about his power and stand in awe of him and worship him for his great power. Are you thankful that he exercises that power on your behalf? Because he is. He's continually working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. His power is there available to every one of us through his Holy Spirit who indwells us. But if you're not a believer today, you should tremble. You should be afraid of this great God. Because he can crush you more easily than I could crush an ant in my fingers. He can destroy you. Jesus said that, fear the one who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. Jesus said that. So he is a God to be feared. He's a God to be loved. He's a God to be cherished. He's a God to be adored. He is the great God of Scripture. And I don't know if there's anyone here who is not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, but if you're not, come to know him. Cast yourself in his mercy. Tremble before him. Believe in him. Believe in Christ as Savior. Because if we'll come to God on, on God's own terms, turning from sin and embracing Jesus Christ as our all in all, God will show his power on our behalf. He's promised to do so. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are in awe of you today. We're in awe of the power that we see displayed in this universe. We can't even understand it, Lord. But thank you for making such a vast universe just to put us in our place. And Lord, we're so thankful that though you are a God of power, you're also a God who invites us into an intimate and close relationship with you. That you love us, you're for us, you're not against us. That your power is given for our, our benefit, our good, rather than our destruction. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you teach us all how to depend more on your power, to live out this Christian life, to demonstrate your love to our enemies and people that revile us and hurt us and reject us. Lord, please manifest your power more and more in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.